Each time the police appeared, we would hide. When the inspector would come to the school, the instructors would hide me because I didn't have a legal existence. You can imagine how much this would affect a seven-year-old child, what kind of antagonisms it can create between childhood and the authority. During this period at Deir al-Assad, I met a man who had a beautiful voice, who used to come in the night to our neighbors at the entrance of the village, play the rababa, and sing his story, how he left his house and how he crossed the border and how he returned. He used to tell of the nights and moon, a heartbreaking nostalgia. Listening to him, I felt how much the words carried the reality. I understood that art comes from simple things. I wanted to imitate this man. This is reminiscent of Sherazad, who told her story during the night to save her life. That's true. I remember when we were still in our native village that guests would come each night to my grandfather's house, drink tea or coffee and practice this ritual. Someone reads from a book and sings. That's the way of the Arab cultural tradition. It redeems the present and redeems its suffering. When morning comes, the police return. When you speak of suffering, you feel that you have within you the creative force. God created the world. Man can create poetry. This man resembled a knight. The whole country was looking for him. He used to live in the mountains. He would come, sing, and whenever the light of day dawned, he would disappear into the heights. One day he finally vanished, but his voice has remained in me. In 1976, in The Poem of the Land, I said of him, The singer sings of fire and strangers. The evening was evening, and the singer was singing. And they interrogate him, Why do you sing? He answered, Because I sing. They searched his chest, but they only find his heart. They searched his heart. They only find his people. They searched his voice, but they only find his sadness. They searched his sadness. They only find his prison. They searched his prison. They only find themselves in chains. That was an excerpt of Palestine as Metaphor, uh, a new collection of interviews with the poet Mahmoud Darwish, uh, translated by Amira Zain and Caroline Forchet, and read to you by Marsha Lynx Quayley. I'm Ursula Lindsay, and this is uh, episode 40 of the Bulak podcast, uh, recorded as usual these days between uh, Amman, Jordan, and Rabat, Morocco. And uh, as I said, we're going to be focusing quite a bit on this book of uh, really rich and really interesting interviews uh, with the Palestinian poet Emeritus, I think. Um, and uh, and But before that, we're also going to be talking about uh, some of the quite momentous events um, that have been happening uh, developments uh, for good and for bad in Lebanon and in Egypt recently, and uh, some of the ways that people are thinking about these developments, writing about them, and understanding them. Um, so we have kind of a packed, uh, a packed episode, I think. <laughs> and you were recently in Beirut. Yeah, so I kind of want to talk about uh, Lebanon because it's on my mind. Um, I uh, I was in Beirut in mid-November, and there have been protests in Lebanon uh, since uh, October 17th. Mm. 
um, triggered by this, you know, one final straw uh, tax on WhatsApp calls, which is really so offensive to people because um, the government was sort of trying to fill this enormous yawning deficit you know, that they have created themselves through their terrible policies and through getting the country indebted in all these ways that they've actually profited from. And then they turn around and sort of slap this little, you know, measly tax, which isn't obviously going to really address the problem, but at the same time is asking people who are already under, you know, a huge economic strain to uh, contribute more, um, especially in a country where I think, you know, being able to talk to people for free around the world when you have like a diaspora that's like literally more people than the people who live in Lebanon, like it's important for people to have affordable ways of communicating. Right. Um, so yeah, so that triggered these protests and they were still going when I, when I got there. Um, and they've sort of been through highs and lows as I'm sure you can imagine. Like it's a, it's a whole process, right, to be out in the street. Uh, and there's days where it's very jovial and there's days where it's very tense. Um, when I was there, it was actually, it was very kind of like relaxed and celebratory in downtown Beirut, at least. Mm. And and to me, as I read Lebanese writing about what's going on, and as I read what what the writing is in, in the international press in in English, there are uh, uh, there's a vast gap in how people are talking about what's happening. Uh, why is that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I think the coverage, the international coverage has actually been really quite poor. And I say this as someone who like often when you sort of see the complaint online of, you know, whatever this, these protests or this tragedy or, or this attack has happened in, in this uh you know, a uh, country in Asia or Africa in the Middle East, why doesn't the Western media care or why isn't it covering it? I actually often find like, you know, actually it is being covered, you know, or there's a kind of logical explanation for why it's not. Like, you know, the, the, there, there, are, there are pretty understandable reasons why the media might be more focused elsewhere, you know, American or European media. But in this case, I really do find it kind of strange how little attention and like good analysis has been provided of these protests. I mean, I think the best writing has probably just been coming out of more like think tanks and research institutes and sort of Middle East focused uh, programs. Right. But the sort of general media coverage has not been very strong of the protests in Lebanon or in Iraq, to be honest, right, which are true. even, which, right. which are like really big and really violent at this point, like being repressed really violently. Um, I, I, I've actually sort of discussed this with other journalists. I don't know. I think there was a kind of like we like the Western media doesn't quite know how to frame this narrative. It doesn't have the easy, exciting framing that it had back in 2011. Right. Good versus you know, evil. Uh, the street versus autocracy. Right. I mean, because basically that didn't work out as people expected. And so they, I think there's a hesitation to celebrate what's going on now because they're not, 
you know, journalists aren't sure how it's going to turn out, which may be a, a fair impulse, but because, I mean, to be, you know, because perhaps we went too far in the other direction and, you know, during the Arab Spring of sort of, you know, expecting this to, uh, you know, usher in new democracies in the, in six months. But uh, there's, um, I don't know, there's a sort of, I think it's a it's a problem with not knowing how to frame it. And I think in Lebanon in particular, it's because it's very economically based and you and you need to talk about the economy. And uh I spent a lot of the, my 5 days in Beirut, I spent a lot of time talking about the economy with people and it was hard for me um to like grasp the sort of underlying issues and it's just hard. It's hard to 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 figure out what's going on and then to write about it in a way that keeps people's interest. Right. I guess the coverage in the international media that I've seen has often relied on framings that I find very bizarre, like, looks like the Civil War's back. Like, what? That's what you're getting out of it? <laughs> <laughs> or there's this, you know, oh, you know, Hezbollah's and, you yeah, know, there's, right. there's this one framing of this is a blow to Iran and to Hezbollah, um, you know, which I think, which strikes me as very premature. And I mean, I, so the, the, the piece that I wrote, which, uh, we can, we can link to, I didn't talk about Hezbollah very much because I just don't know that organization well enough Mm. to say hardly anything about how it's being impacted by this, you know, other than it's sort of general public position, which has been not very supportive of the protests, uh, which has been sort of more supportive of the status quo, which is interesting. Right. Uh, But, you know, I I feel like as often, like, I feel like I've read a lot of bad pieces where people are projecting without seeming to have done any kind of like on the ground reporting, like they're projecting their kind of ideological... Uh, a priori onto what's happening in a really kind of like uninteresting way, you know, so, uh, uh, you know, this is the fall of Hezbollah or this is the end of neoliberalism or, you know, this is that whatever it is, like it, you know, it doesn't feel like very connected to what's happening there. It feels like someone from halfway across the world kind of like fitting Sorry, I'm gonna do that again. Okay. It, it it feels like someone from halfway across the world, kind of fitting it into their uh, ideological framework. Yeah, I really haven't read anything outside from anyone written written from outside of Lebanon that builds out of the details. You know. Yeah, I mean, there's been some interesting commentary. Um, the things that I've read that I've enjoyed the most. Uh, Maybe there was some, there was, there was, there was an editorial by Elliot. Of course, like a lot of Lebanese intellectuals and writers are commenting. So there was an editorial by Elias Khouri, the novelist that was written in Arabic and then translated into French for Le Monde, which is kind of an open letter to his, um, uh, old, f- to his friend, the late, uh, journalist Samir Kassir, uh, who was assassinated, uh, I think over a decade ago or about a decade ago, um, you know, and is very extremely enthusiastic about what's happening right now. And there was, there's, 
I, I heard an interview with Dominique Adé, the Lebanese writer right. uh, who writes in French, where I thought she was very like articulate and sharp and sort of poetic in her in her analysis of what's been going on. Um, in with an also kind of like humility and a sort of like uh, really kind of like emotional honesty. Like I think people are very moved. Um, yes, the people who yes. are participating in this, uh, and obviously, like the sort of exciting thing about it is that it does seem to mark the emergence of a post-sectarian constituency. Mm. I, I mean, to you know. Not saying that sectarianism is gone in any way, but the people who are participating in the protest, they're trying to build a non-confessional, right? Maybe like uh, voice and right. discourse, maybe and political anti, platform, maybe anti-sectarian more than post-sectarian. I mean, we still are in a a time that sectarianism is important, but these, this is a movement sort of against that of crossing lines of. Uh, of breaking down those those uh those ways of of being yeah of of speaking as citizens and i think in the especially in the beginning like in the in the sort of opening days of the protests in particular like it really was everybody um you know it was like uh you know working class boys from shia neighborhoods in beirut like meeting, you know, middle-class kids from Christian neighborhood. Like, it was everybody. Everybody was there. And I think that moment's really strong. And so, and people are st are really trying to kind of keep building on it. Um, so I think it's super interesting. Uh, and uh, I, I, met, I met a friend of yours. I met the translator, Lena Munzer, in the protests when I was there. And I uh, we can link to something that she's written um, also recently. Um, I think it's hard to write about what's going on when you're in it, too. Yeah, although I would say that the people who've been writing from a position of being connected to the events have written far more interesting and detailed and moving things than people who've been writing from this position of uh, apparent objectivity or at least distance. I mean, I know, yeah, that, I know that when I was when I was in Cairo and part of 2011, I wrote from too much of a position of, uh, I don't know, romanticism, I guess. But maybe the people who are involved now can look at those the ways in which people wrote in 2011 and use language differently now. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I think it's part of the historical record to write. Um... I mean, I th I think people will look back on their writing and they won't quite see it and won't quite feel it the same way in a couple of years. But that's one of the things that the writing will do is is actually remind you um, how it felt at that time. Uh, I think probably each time you can't use the same language and the same terms, like... I think if Egypt had a second uprising, people would not write about it the same way because in a way, some of those terms and some of those ideas were used up. Right. So they'll have to find new ways to frame it to themselves and to feel it. Yeah, well, and I think so, some, of, some of those words were revived in, in 2011. Some of those, the, 
used in a romantic way that had been used, you know, revolution had been used in 1952 and then had become a stale term and then had been used again. I guess words go through all kinds of different phases. And yeah, we certainly can't use them in the same way now that we did eight years ago. I mean, personally, like, uh, I know because I have been so affected by how closely I sort of lived and followed events in Egypt, like, I I have, to, I, I don't use the word Sauda mm. uh, very freely. Um, and I don't use the word Shab. Like, I really am very skeptical of people who talk about the Shab in any way, <laughs> like the people, like any use of the concept of the, any sort of slogans that sort of talk about the people, because that was one that I felt like every night for months, I was just, you know, everybody on television was like yelling at everybody else about like the people and the people yelling about it were the worst. Right. <laughs> they they were like the least, you know, genuinely concerned or even respectful of the actual people of their country. Like I just, it really felt like it was in the mouth of the worst scoundrels mm-hmm. for so long. So it, it I, I, I can't. So, you know, things like that. Um, I think what's interesting also in Lebanon, in Iraq, I mean, obviously there's this whole second iteration, this whole second wave of protests going on. You have Algeria, you have Sudan, mm. uh, you have Iraq, you have Iran now. I mean, there, there is a whole second wave because the problems are not resolved uh, they're, they're not going anywhere. But of course, it's different. And, and people, you know, regimes adapt, but people adapt. Uh, and, uh, you know, Egypt is a cautionary tale to like a lot of other countries and, and protesters in Lebanon have a different political and historical consciousness uh, because of everything that's happened in the last decade, too, and because of the specificity of their situation. Um so it'll be different. Uh, and at the same time, it's all connected. Right. Well, in my opinion. Right. Well, one thing that Lena wrote, Alina Atala, the editor in chief of Moda Masr, the um, sort of one of the, the key independent media outlets that remain in Egypt, in this piece in The Funambulist, which she wrote a while ago, but was only made uh, public, uh, publicly accessible after the arrests that happened last week. Um, she, she wrote something that, uh, uh, you don't take power, you build power. And to me that, uh, and, and it's, she's quoting, a, a Greek, um, I don't know, activist, uh, but it, it, that helped me, it helps me sort of re-see it, you know, what, what is being done and what needs to be done. Yeah, I mean, we should talk about Mada. So um, strangely enough, when I was in Beirut, I saw all these friends from Cairo, uh, you know, because partly because Beirut is open, partly because people are are literally, some people are just going there to see what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, same as me, like just drawn like a moth to the flame right. um, of this kind of, uh, uh, you know, lovely moment. Um, and some people have relocated there and so on and so forth. So uh, um, so I so I ended up sort of actually talking and thinking about 
Egypt the whole time too. And then, and then, a, you know, a, a week later, um, there was um, this attack on the Mada Masr staff. So both the arrest of an editor um, who was disappeared for a couple days right. and then dumped on the side of a road eventually. Uh, and this raid on their office where they were sort of held in communicado for several hours. And then uh, Lena and and two other editors were taken um, and seemingly were about to be taken to prison. And, and then there was literally a sort of last moment uh, change, like a U-turn in the of the of the police van, and they were let go. Um at which we were all, I think, following. I mean, a lot, a lot of people were very concerned and were following this from all over the world and putting pressure however they could. Uh, so this, like, you know, beloved and beleaguered institution just barely survived right. uh, its sort of first first really frontal encounter because they've been getting harassed in a lot of different ways and the site's been blocked for a really long time, but... This was the first, I think, like physical, you know, uh, right, like real, like raid on the location, right, where people were physically affected. Yeah. Were you like glued to your phone all day with uh, updates? I was from the from the very moment. I, I had just gotten a, an email from somebody who works at Mada who who actually, as it happened, there were a few people who were late to work that day. So as they arrived, the door was shut. The the, the, the office was sealed. Um, so there was, you know, a very kind of an inside-outside thing on that day as well. When I read the, when I read the accounts, because like you say, they published, they sort of published all this writing in, in very shortly after, like three, four days later, they've now kind of documented in this very personal way what, what happened and everybody's... When I read, though, about how many people were, like, late to the meeting and therefore just, ma- ma- like, didn't get arrested, because I worked there for a year before I, I left Egypt, I was like, of course, like, good thing everybody's always late to every <laughs> meeting because half the staff... <laughs> like managed to like not get detained that way. And then I was also like, but if I been, I would have ended up in the room of people being held because I was always like one of the people who was like lame and super punctual. Um, but but I, I mean, I think was, what was great was the way they, um, they almost reciprocated all the support that people gave them and this concern by then uh, this really intimate account of, what happened hour by hour and how they felt and what they were doing. Um, so you really had an, a sense of, you know, what they'd been through, I mean, a little bit, you know. Uh, yeah, well, definitely they really have made themselves, they have let us in, I, I think, you know, let everybody who felt like they were a part of Mother in that moment in in to be a part of that experience, be a part of this process, be a part of this um, you know new attempt, this this particular attempt of you know journalistic art. Yeah, I mean, I have never come across. I mean, maybe they're out there, but I don't. I don't read any other venues that both do the kind of really serious journalism that they do uh, because. The, the report that got them in trouble is this kind of groundbreaking report on 
you know, the the President Sisi's son being uh, transferred uh, out of the country, you know, sourced to like anonymous intelligence officials who, you know, these kinds of leaks are just incredibly hard to get this kind of access. And nobody has the guts to do this kind of reporting in Egypt right now. Uh, so they do and, this... And- Right. And not only that, but it's good reporting. You know, I, I trust that they verified these sources, that they that they had two sources on uh, or more on every single item that they published. Right. I mean, I think they would have to, 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 to go through with it. But then, so they have, you know, uh, this, this kind of really dead serious reporting. And then also this level of, like you say, um, like, almost artistic approach to what they're doing, philosophical approach to what they're doing, sometimes playful, uh, um, you know, uh, this kind of uh, self-awareness and and being so articulate about analyzing what they're doing. I mean, it, it's, it, it seems very rare and unusual uh, to take this I approach. Do, right. Yeah, no, I, I also can't think of any other um, that they, I mean, I think of Lena as a theorist of, of journalism, um, among many other things. And it's true. I, I talk, people in Morocco who I ran into were talking about this investigative piece about Sisi's son. I think it's an important piece that they did. But one of the things I most love about Mala is this weekend detox that they do, where, you know, it's, it's a detox. It's, and it's, all sorts of fun and uh, joyful things. And Lena writes, wrote, also wrote in her piece after what had happened about how Shady edited and danced at his desk. You know, um, there is a part of, of joy that is an important part of their project. Yeah, I think for me personally, one of the things that's very interesting in sort of following them from afar is to act they they give me an opportunity to understand how people are able to maintain this kind of a commitment um because they're because they let you in and kind of see how important uh certain forms of like humor and reflection and solidarity are to like continuing to do this kind of work because I find it personally like unimaginable like I don't it seems like a kind of pressure that I could not stand uh the the like anxiety of it um and so it's it allows you to see how like you said she you know Lena talked about building power I think the power you build is also the power of your team like um, right, you know, and and the people who work there are ex- are extraordinary people, and and become more extraordinary sort of collectively. But also, the power that they have built is also the power of the community that they have built. So they've built a community uh, in the team that works for Madamasar, a community of the of their readers, and a community of their uh, of the people that they've led into these moments by writing about them also, by opening up to a- allow us to participate in, in this moment, in these moments as well. So, so the, the power that they have built 
is we're a part of it as well. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. And, and, and an analysis of the process, that's also sometimes very intellectual. Like that also sometimes takes, um, I think gets its strengths by taking a sort of sort of critical distance to what they're doing. I mean, I really don't think there's a lot of other editors out there who are like right, quoting Foucault or Andalus. <laughs> when they, and, and yeah, absolutely. When they, when they write about their like day to day work, and I mean, uh, I, I think also sort of taking this in, like looking at what you're doing as really intellectually fascinating and always kind of questioning why you're doing it and if it makes difference. And, you know, I mean, I loved also this piece of Lena where she sort of talks about like, are we being radical enough? Like you'd think being the only, you know, truly independent uh, news site in an incredibly repressive environment would be radical enough, but she's still like invested. She's still, you know, questioning, you know, whether well, they it, are. That reminded me, that reminded me of the interviews with Saad Alawanous, you know, in the, in that collection of plays that had interviews and other pieces at the end about how he felt about, you know, cause she talks about the, the margin that's allowed, the allowable margin of radicalism that, that an autocratic government will allow. And he was this sort of allowable margin that was the proof that they were not an autocratic government. So when are you this allowable margin and do you slip into these patterns? And then when are you really changing things? But I think the fact that they are constantly thinking about this also changes the game. Yeah. I mean, and I loved how they described how much they laughed. I mean, nervously, but during, (laughs) during the raids and I, and I, and some of the details, um, that people shared, I mean, you know, about, you know, being in the truck with your colleagues on the way to prison, holding hands and telling each other, you know, no regrets, I mean, right. this this is just uh, one just stands in awe. Anyway, so we will uh, continue, obviously, to to share their work and follow their work and consider them like the red line. Mada is the red line. Do not touch Mada, please. <laughs> otherwise, <Yes. laughs> um, otherwise, we're all there's going to be a hell hell to pay. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure what we can do, but. Definitely, Mada is also my red line. Yeah. Um, well, uh, we should perhaps move on to talking about uh, this lovely book that we've both read. Yes, it's entitled Palestine as Metaphor, Mahmoud Darwish, which unfortunately I think doesn't give a sense that there are five conversations, interviews with Darwish inside, but I'm always fussy about other people's titles. I mean, yeah, Palestine as metaphor is is a pretty good title. Um, it could say interviews with Mahmoud Darwish, <laughs> but yeah, it's a, so yeah, it's like you said, it's a collection of five. They all take place in like ninety five and ninety six. So, if you want to situate sort of the context of these conversations, it's post Oslo. Um, I believe that by then Darwish who. Uh, had lived uh, in Lebanon during the Civil War and then had lived in Paris, uh, had by then come back, I believe, and was living between Amman and Ramallah. 
I, or, I think or, that happens in the middle of these interviews. Okay. Yeah. Um, so maybe should we give a very short biography of Darwish, which, I mean, because he does talk a lot, I mean, a fair amount, and that's some of the things that I find quite interesting here about his upbringing and his childhood and his family and, and sort of where he's from. Yeah, that that was one of the things I found very lovely, and particularly in the first interview. So he was born in the village of El Birwa in 1942, and he was six in 1948. Um, and he so he talks a lot about in this in these interviews about things that I think are touched on in some of his collections, particularly his prose works, you know, how his relationship with his grandfather as they left when, how he thought it was kind of a picnic, this, this first trip to Beirut, how he thought it was, you know, a vacation. Um, and then returning and being, um, on not, you know, unpapered, uh, and as I, in the section that I read from, being seven years old and not and being enrolled in school, but not being supposed to be in school, and he talks about his his very important relationship with his mother, which was very fraught, <laughs> and um, and then how he he published his first collection in 1960, and in this he was you know he talks about how he was at first very much part of uh, Palestinian poetry and that they didn't know about the larger strands that were going on elsewhere in contemporary Arabic poetry, uh, and then coming to know the work of Badr Shekhar Sayyab and how important that became to him. Um, uh, well, go, in fact, oh, sorry. No, sorry, go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, 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 no. I was just going to say, in fact, he, I mean, because so he, his family came back from Lebanon and then lived in, in Israel, uh, as you said, in this kind of, strange, uh, absentee, present, (laughs) unacknowledged, you know, uh, legal status. So he, 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 he went to school, he learned Hebrew and he was, he actually was exposed to most world literature at first in Hebrew translations. Right. Um, and the most interesting interview to me, um, well, they're all interesting in their own way. The most exciting interview, I suppose, is the one with Halit uh, Yishroun, who is the editor of an Israeli literary magazine. Uh, interesting, both you know, for for its sort of contentiousness as well as openness. I think. Yeah. Okay. So he. So. It, and it shows to what extent um, he was also engaged and embedded in Hebrew literature and and that he's in conversation with Hebrew po- poetry as well. Yeah, and how comfortable he is also like basically arguing with Israelis. I mean, I think he has a knowledge of Israeli society that makes him a very strong and confident interlocutor. Uh, I mean, and so as a, as a young man, he was a member of the Communist Party in Israel, right? Ra- yes. Raka? Mm-hmm. And had obviously, you know, a lot of his Israeli friends and also famously a romantic relationship that he right. immortalized <laughs> in, the, in this poem, Risa and Her Rifle, which became this song, which is, you know, just very, very famous. Um 
And so you do you do feel like that also gives him both as a sort of, you know, public intellectual and then as an artist because his poems are written sometimes they're written you feel like they're more directed to a Palestinian audience, but often they're written to this kind of composite audience that is Israeli Palestinian like uh, ev- from everywhere. Like he has a kind of um uh, horizon in terms of his imagined audience, uh, you know, where he's writing from and who he's writing to that's very broad. Right. Well, and also uh, an imaginary of who, what is Palestine? Palestine itself is a composite of all sorts of different ethnicities and backgrounds. It's a, it's a, it's a ground that was crossed by many people and that's how he wants it to be. Yeah, yeah, this sort of laying claim to all of its history, all of its cultures. Um, I mean, uh, you know, he's very erudite, and he would he 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 would read a lot uh, about like ancient civilizations or you know other parts of the world that would then become fodder for the poems. You know, that would be about like the Mongol invasion or uh, a Canaanite goddess. Uh, so, 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 I mean, I think one of the things that's very impressive about him is that he starts out as this sort of poet of the Palestinian resistance, which is a label that he's never comfortable with. Right. Um, and completely breaks out of those bounds. Right. And he, in each interview, he has a slightly, I mean, he's always somewhat annoyed by critical his critical reception and somewhat pushing back against this but also feeling that by you know by these interviews in the mid 90s that the audience is coming they they are coming with him to his new poems that yes every new collection people will say why didn't you write it exactly like the previous collection but that people are expanding their their way of reading poetry to read his poetry yeah, he has a kind Which of... Which is pretty amazing, really. Yeah, totally. And he has a, a slightly fraught relationship with his readers, but overall a positive relationship with his readers. It's mm. the critics that he's yeah. really <laughs> right. not happy with, right? Yes. Well, he did... <laughs> and barely he, so. And the other right. thing... He did speak fondly of one Egyptian critic who uh, he said had coined this the revolution while dreaming uh, moniker. <laughs> For him, but by and large, I, I, you know, I think fairly, he said, as I think we see now with um, Iraqi poets in in the United States, you have an Iraqi poet, you must also have a U.S. soldier poet. You know, he said in in every every uh, place that he appeared, he, he was a Palestinian poet. Also, they had to go find an Israeli poet as well, as if somehow to balance his um, his his work, they needed an Israeli poet. Right. Well, I mean, there's the way that is, yes, there's the Israeli pigeonholing of him. There's the international pigeonholing of him where the interest in him is, as as he says, you're only interested in us actually because you're interested in the Jewish people. You're not interested in the Palestinian people. You're interested in the Jewish people. It was one of his many very quotable, like he is so incredibly quotable, but, you know, um, and then there's the Israeli reaction to him, which tends to be quite hysterical in the sense that his poems are literally taken 
uh, I mean, they're forbidden from being taught, and it's a scandal when someone proposes that they be taught in Israeli schools, and they're taken as evidence that, like, you can't make peace with the Palestinians. One of his poems, when he basically has a line about, like, you know, getting out of here. Um, but then also his his Palestinian and Arab readers also pigeonhole him, right? Because right. he complains about them reading all his poems as being about Palestine. Right. It's like, I write about my lover and they say it's Palestine. Right. And they say and she's he's the like, no, sometimes, right. right. And he's like, no, sometimes it's just my lover. So it, there's all these interesting ways in which, but what I find so admirable about him as a figure is that he manages to remain free somehow, despite all these frames being put on him. Yeah, I think he manages not to be contained by them, not to to not find them irresistible. In part because he is so beloved, he he doesn't care uh, about the critics, and he knows that he's bigger than all these things. He's extremely confident. I mean, he really has he has a line in there somewhere where he says like basically I don't I don't give a damn about, you know, my critical reception and whether the audience loves me or not. And then he says quite honestly, you know, maybe I can say that because they've always loved me. Right. right. <laughs> More or less, you know, he's like and maybe it's true that if it didn't, I would like long for that kind of recognition, but, you know, uh he's uh I, I mean, it is a it is a very nice collection because he's very witty. Uh, like I said, he's sort of supremely confident. He seems to really enjoy imp- unpacking his poems. Yes, yes, to enjoy analyzing his own work. Absolutely. I mean, maybe because he feels like the critics aren't doing it well, so he's like, listen, let me just lay it out for you. <laughs> the other thing that I loved, and this may be a very particular interest, but he did also discusses the translations of his work. Um, and he argued with um, Halit Yushirun at one point because she said, well, you say um, that in this instance, uh, oh, I, I don't have it in front of me, but he said, no, that's not how that would translate at all. Whoever translated that translated it incorrectly. Oh, I know. They're talking about the word, um, I think it's the word fadiha, and it gets translated as shame. And uh, he yes. says, it's, it's scandal. Like my poetry is my is my skin like I, I he's right it has a different connotation it's more like it's his scandalous secret it's not something he's ashamed of right it's his way of exposing himself yes yeah, so it's it's he also talks yes yeah, so uh about how thing how his poetry has moved into hebrew and into other languages as well um you know it has a i think more or less healthy relationship toward it of um once the poem is gone into another language, there it is. It's its own thing. He seems to trust Anton Shamas with translation much more than anybody else, but then also able to critique when the translations have gone really off the rails. Um, what was uh, what were some of your favorite parts? So you enjoyed this quite contentious back and forth with the Israeli <laughs> I did, editor? Who, who once apparently... Uh, banned him from her journal because of a poem that he wrote. Because of this poem, it was a poem, I feel like I'm going to get the details wrong, but it was written, I think, during the Intifada. And it has this line of like, you know, get out, get out of us, get out of our land, get out of our sea, something like that. It's a really, it's kind of angry poem. It was written about as people were being killed. Yeah, he, and he, it was, he said he doesn't really, the thing he regrets about it, 
most is that it's a bad poem. Right, right. And it was taken as evidence, you know, that like, oh, there can be no peace with the Palestinians because this one guy wrote an angry poem. Right. And actually, as I would, because I'm writing about this book, as I was like looking at old YouTube videos and stuff of Darwish reading his poems, I came across this speech of Benjamin Netanyahu to like the American Congress uh, back in the 80s, where he's explaining to them why peace with the Palestinians is impossible. And he quotes this poem. He doesn't, he, he can't, he doesn't pronounce his name right. He says it's a poem by Mohammed Darwish. Oh. And and he uses it as evidence for why, see, like, they don't want peace. They want to throw us out of the country entirely, like, they're impossible to negotiate with. So it was really taken as a, as a, as a, as a way to bolster that argument. Yeah, and I, I think his poetry, even to past his death, even to recent years, has been banned from the radio has has caused all kinds of still it's still a contentious point but i i wish i could sort of instantly flip to this page but he says something like well you dismantle the settlements and i'll go ahead and dismantle that poem and i didn't read it as him him being sort of angry with her but more like lighthearted almost like yes it's a it's a poem i'm not that proud of it wasn't that great but you know it's a poem. It happened. I was angry. Yeah. I mean, uh, he also has a line in that exchange where he's like, listen, I have to tell you, like, don't expect Palestinians to love the state of Israel. I mean, he literally has to say that to her because there's a weird, I do feel like there's a number of the questions are sort of constantly pushing him to define his feelings and his the level of his acceptance basically of Israel right which which is exactly the thing that he chafes about you know right that like that's that has to be the defining thing about him that has to be the whole conversation in certain venues right yes but i lo- i i really enjoy the whole contentious aspect of that uh interview and i do think it it gets to many things um even if some of the questions are I don't know, occasionally condescending as well. Um, like when she says, oh, your Hebrew is so beautiful. Like, well, like it, it felt really a bit like your English is so good. I mean, it's hard to tell because this one is the one that felt the most like a real, ex- like a real conversation rather than an interview. Right. And it's really hard without having the cues of, of voices and bodies to know the tone of some of these exchanges. Right. Um, you know, was it pretty lighthearted? Was it, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating to read, um, but it's sort of hard, you know, hard to tell. You wish that there was like a, a recording of this. Right. You do have to kind of project an emotional state onto it. But, um, but he's always very, I mean, he can certainly hold his own and, and what you said about him being mostly funny in his retorts, like he also, I mean, he has so many, it's, it's, it's really a shame that I have such a bad memory. So I'm trying to remember the wonderful quotes by this person and like garbling every single one of them. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, but he speaks multiple times about, uh, you know, the absurdity and irony of history and needing to embrace irony 
as you kind of live through history, like being given this incredible lesson in irony, basically by the history, by his own history, by the history of the Palestinian people. And that that is the attitude that he has to take. Yes, definitely. One of the things, the other things I really liked about this as a collection of interviews and not reading them separately is that here he is painting a picture of himself and you can see the picture changing slightly or developing different aspects of it. It's like coming back around to a story and seeing somebody develop different aspects of of how he felt about his mother and, or or that the um the uh, the the legendary figure that he's talking about in in the the passage I read from in the opening. He talks about that two, two separate times and it, it appears slightly differently in each. And I I really enjoy those kinds of returns to different moments. Well, it's similar to the poetry itself, right? Because he revisits in a number, I mean, again and again, he's sort of like reweaving his own story um, with these like larger myths. I mean, he talks a lot about creating myths um, and creating like a new, new myths and then like connecting them to also like everyday things and to your personal life. I'm now, I'm in the process of reading In the Presence of Absence. Oh, I love that one. Yes. Yeah, it's very nice. And he has these descriptions of, which he's also talked about in some of the other books and some of the other poems of his childhood and so on. But I really love the ones where he talks about learning to read and to write. Um yeah, it's true. I think if you read all of his work sequentially, which I haven't, um, you would find him coming back to these moments again and again. But like you say, from a slightly different angle each mm-hmm. time, I mean, uh, uh, re-elaborating them and expanding them. I mean, he really was such an evolving artist, even as maybe the the raw material of it is always, you know, there are these fundamental elements to it. Uh Right. He said, so he says at one point, um, I, I'm aspiring to create a modern parallel to mythology despite the different perception of time and despite the feeling that the world today is estranged from the idea of the hero, how by rebuilding the world, each poem carries the project of constructing a new genesis, a new beginning. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth and the earth was chaos. Each time the poem should create its own in the beginning. So I do feel like in the interview, as within his poems, he's going back in the beginning. There was there was me, and I was I was leaving Albirwa. In the beginning, there was me and my mother, and seeing it differently and reestablishing not, not just the mythology of self, but also the mythology of of belonging, of of place, of existence. And he also has this interesting idea that he's. You know, the, the, the despair and loss and defeat, although he makes a distinction between that and surrender, are like the places from which you can recreate, from which you can re, you know, you can have this kind of artistic genesis. And he says, you know, things like he, he chose to be a Trojan poet and he's in the camp of the losers. And like, you know, the, that because that's where that's where the good poetry comes from. Um, yeah, I've I've re- reread those passages on despair several times because I am still struggling with how how am I supposed to understand that despair is is my place of creativity. 
I don't know, it may be particular to him. I read it as like, you know, that it creates this almost blank slate on which he has to remake the world. Mm. I mean, Mm. his world really completely was taken away from him at age six. And then more than once again, I mean, because he had to leave Israel and wasn't allowed back to Haifa for 30 years or more. And he had to leave Beirut when the Palestinian factions were forced out. Right. And I mean, so again and again, he's had to kind of start over um, and that there's that there's sort of immense creative potential to be found from a sort of barren place. I think is his yeah. Argument. I guess I guess the despair is like a letting go in a sense, and a I think also if if you contrast it to winners, like what do winners see? What do they? What can they see of the world? What can they understand of the world? What, what? How can they? What stories can they write? I think also he sees them as like not not create like they won, and sometimes he'd like to switch places with them, but. But they don't have, you know, the ability to tell as good of a story. Right. Because they're just blinded by their winning. Right. Well, he has that this lovely um, uh, passage where he talks about uh, the, the jailed person sings, whereas the jailer is too busy because they, they, are, they understand their solitude, whereas the jailer is too busy watching the jailed. Yeah. I wanted to read, there's so many piece, quotes that I think are great, but um, you read just now his description is very, you know, grandiose, although somehow he manages not to sound pompous, description of, you know, everything that his poetry should accomplish. Right. Uh, you know, this genesis and kind of world building and and there's another passage where he's also describing again the the sort of his ambitions and to sort of cover like historical arguments and then he adds a poem written in Israel or in Palestine must allow us to hear the voice of prophets the genuine and the false there must also be donkeys there <laughs> and i like how that's for me he and he, what he's talking about is that there has to be particularity right like you can be universal and you can be very ambitious and and for me it's that balance in his poems where he gets very metaphysical and very philosophical who am i where am i but then also there's this this there's this actual uh physicality to the images musicality also that kind of pulls it back, right, to earth. Right. And maybe the uh, this collection of interviews is the same. You know, there's a lot of uh, philosophizing about what it means to create poetry and uh, what are different type, what is his poetry and where does it stand? And then there's also about his, his, mo- his mother's anger and his father's shyness and his difficult relationship. And um, there's some specificity to, to him I, that I get out of this that I really feel attached to. Yeah, it's it's very enjoyable. You 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 hear he has a real voice. I mean, it it comes through. Uh and he's and he's and he's sort of on he always throws out something true. It, it's not it's not it's not just platitudes. It's a it's a very nice collection. It's a really 
interesting view um, into his process and his personality. Yeah, and I would just like to say that Amira and, and Carolyn Frochet also did a lovely job of of translating it into uh, a, a dense and yet very easily readable English. Mm, yeah. Well, listen, shall we wrap up there? Yes, I for, think so. For this time. All right. Unfortunately, say goodbye. Um, and uh, we'll be doing this again as usual in a couple weeks. Yes, I will talk to you then. Okay. All right. Great talking to you. I love talking to you too. Bye.